You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's time to look at this clock. I mean, think about it. This clock, it's, it's pretty complex. But I'll tell you, that's because somebody designed it. I mean, it was designed top down. They didn't start with a bucket full of gears and springs, shake it around, and expect a clock to somehow drop out of that. Dang, it's not working. Come together as a clock, you dummies. Um, so I have a tip. Here's a screwdriver. And yet here's the thing. In nature, there are complex organisms and behaviors that did come from simpler things that arranged themselves. And, you know, that's funny because usually in nature, it works the other way. Complex things usually become simpler. A forest fire, for example, it takes a very complex ecosystem and it turns it into something very simple, ash. But sometimes simpler structures will actually join up, and they'll create something that's greater than the sum of their parts, something that's more complex. Now, it's a bit counterintuitive because we might imagine that something that is as complicated as a thinking brain must have somehow appeared fully formed to do what it can do. Yeah, rather than just being the behavior of, you know, zillions of neurons, individual neurons. It can do something those guys can't do individually. And how many neurons are in the human brain? I don't know. I think it's like a trillion or something. Oh, I thought you said zillions. Oh, well, there, there may be zillions, but I don't know what a zillion is. Okay, the point is there are many, many neurons in the human brain, and each one's doing its own neuron thing. But when they all come together, something else happens. And this often happens in nature, where things are built from the ground up. And we'll look at that in this show. In this case, cell to cells to consciousness. I'm Molly Bentley. And I'm Seth Shostak, and this is Big Picture Science Emergence. And we are not going to use the sound from the film Alien of the Alien emerging from the stomach of John Hurt, is it? I think it was John Hurt, yes. Yes. He was a mom, suddenly. Okay, and the reason why is it's it's kind of a repulsive sound. (laughs) But that's not the kind of emergence that we're talking about. No, that that kind of emergence just means that it's... (laughs) It's emerging. It's coming out. It's like you going through the front door over there, and you will emerge from the building. But that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is the fact that a whole bunch of simple things can sometimes lead to something that's much more complicated than anything that those individual things could do. Okay, so let's scale this down. Let's begin with a cell. That's small and basic, and we can go from there. All right, then we'll need a cell biologist. My name is Randy Shuckman. I'm a professor of molecular and cell biology here at UC Berkeley. 
But as it turns out, he's also a Nobel laureate. But we didn't know that at the time that we interviewed him. And while we were putting the show together, we learned that Dr. Schechtman had won the Nobel Prize for Physiology or Medicine, along with two other researchers. And so before we continue with his description of a cell, uh, we thought it would be fun to include his reaction to the prize. This is from his press conference at the University of California, Berkeley. Phone rang at 1.30 this morning. I heard Nancy yell out, this is it, this is it. I jumped up, uh, my heart was pounding. I went to the phone, it rang one more time. I picked up the phone, I was trembling, uh, but then a comforting voice with a thick Swedish accent answered on the other line to congratulate me. It was Goran Hansen, the chair of the Nobel Committee. He assured me this was not a prank call, that it was the real thing. Having lived through the moment that it could happen, you have all these thoughts about clever things that you're going to say, and all I could say because I was so shaken was, oh my God, oh my God. And then I went speechless. I couldn't say anything more. If my phone were to ring at 1.30 in the morning, yes, I don't think I'd answer it. Well, actually, I would answer it because I would be worried that it was an emergency call. But when the phone rings at odd times, you know, yeah. what, what happens if you, if you don't pick up the phone? Who's calling at this hour? Uh, probably just a robocall. Hello. You've reached the home of eminent particle physicist and distinguished chemist, doctors Melvin and Irene Fudnick. We're not available no one is peeking up, yeah? All right, he's out. Call the next person on the list. Sheckman Residence, this is Randy. Well, that's another reason to answer the phone. Anyway, Dr. Sheckman won the award for discovering the genes in yeast that are responsible for moving proteins outside the cell, which is an important transportation system. But when we talked to Dr. Sheckman, that was before he had secured that coveted parking spot on the Berkeley campus. He described the basics of how a cell works. So if we're going with this premise of starting small and getting bigger, or at least getting more complex, then first we have to ask, what is a cell? Well, a cell is the fundamental unit of life. All organisms consist either of a single cell or of many cells. In metazoans, multicellular organisms, the cells cooperate. And as life becomes more complex, all the way up to human beings, then cells, for the most part, take on very specialized functions. Now, I've read that under a microscope, a cell looks like a fried egg. Um, uh -huh. if, if we were cell-sized, or if we were more proportional to the uh -huh. size of cells, and we were looking at a cell in front of us, what would it look like? Cells come in a variety of shapes and sizes. They don't generally look like fried eggs. Uh, sometimes when you look at a cell that's growing on a solid surface, the edges of the cell spread out, and the nucleus, which remains round, may look like the yolk of an egg as you're looking down on it. But there are microscopes that allow you to see things in three dimensions, so it doesn't necessarily look like a fried egg. Nerve cells can be very long. They can send projections, axons, as long as a meter away from the cell body, which is where the nucleus is. So they come in a variety of shapes. But are the basic workings of a cell simple? Well, a cell, actually, it is simple. A cell consists basically of two parts. There's the surface of the cell, which is in touch with its environment. It makes contact with other cells. It communicates with other cells. 
And then there's the inside of the cell. The inside of the cell is all the bits and pieces, the nuts and bolts, the machines that cause a cell to be able to communicate with its environment, to crawl around on a surface, and to divide. Now, considering what's inside the cell, there are also more specialized parts. There's a nucleus, which holds the blueprint, the chromosomes of the cell. Humans have around 23,000 genes. All those genes are contained in long strings of DNA molecules called chromosomes that wrap very tightly, and they contain the instructions. They encode all of the proteins and other parts of the cell that must be produced outside of the nucleus in the what's called the cytoplasm. So is the nucleus sort of the brains of the whole operation? You might call it the brains, yes it is. It carries the instructions. It isn't the brains necessarily in that by itself the nucleus is inert. It takes protein molecules, enzymes, to realize the blueprint, to read the blueprint. If you just have chromosomes by themselves it's a blueprint. It's very important instructions, but the instructions need enzymes to interpret that information. So the genes encode proteins. Many of these proteins are enzymes. They're chemical catalysts. And some of these catalysts copy the chromosomes and convey information contained in the genes to the outside of the nucleus, the cytoplasm, where there are other machines called ribosomes that make the protein molecules marching in lockstep to the information that was contained in the genes within the nucleus. So one of the membranes in the cell that's in between the nucleus and the, and the outer surface of the cell is an intact organelle, it's called, a membrane enclosed compartment called a mitochondrion. And the mitochondrion has a specialized role in producing this currency that powers everything else that goes on the cell. This currency is a chemical called ATP. Now, the mitochondrion's been called the battery of the cell or the yes, energy center. Yes, yes. So it's, it's that production of this energy currency called ATP that is why the mitochondrion is so crucial. The mitochondrion is there to uh, charge the battery, to make ATP, to make the, the cell move and divide and to allow enzymes to be made and many enzymes to function. Without that currency, it's like pulling the plug on your house or emptying your car of, of gasoline. Nothing happens. Now, how does a cell know when to divide? Is the nucleus yeah. give it that instruction? So the instructions that a cell relies on to make a decision about dividing is an interplay between the genes that are contained in the nucleus and signaling molecules on the cell surface and in the cytoplasm of the cell. It's not purely dictated by the nucleus. In fact, there's some really neat experiments done long ago where you can take the nucleus out of a frog egg. If you take the nucleus right out of the frog egg, you can watch as the egg continues to divide and to go through contractions that are characteristic of cell divisions. So even without the nucleus, the cytoplasm is programmed to continue to go through cell divisions. If we had a cell in front of us, you can scale this down as much as you need for this thought experiment. What would it look like? Would it be a busy place? Would it be a tranquil place? Would it be like a New no, York it City? No, it would be like New York City. The cell, the, cell, you... the cell would be much more like New York City. There are things moving around. There are wonderful 
images of cells, live images of cells, that allow you to see particular molecules. It's possible to use a special technique that allows you to put a, a kind of a light molecule that emits light right onto a protein and to watch that protein or the mitochondrion move around in living cells. And it seems like chaos. If you were able to see all of the different bits and pieces moving simultaneously, it would seem chaotic. Uh, it would not seem tranquil at all. It would really seem like New York City during rush hour. <laughs> so that suggests it's both crowded and some things are moving very fast. Some things are moving fast, yes. Randy Sheckman is a professor of molecular and cell biology at the University of California, Berkeley, and a winner of the 2013 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. So it turns out that a cell is a really busy place, and when I listen to his description of what's going on in a cell, uh, it has its own complexity. So maybe a cell isn't the best starting place if we're going to illustrate uh, the emergence of complexity. Well, indeed. I mean, you're already starting with something that is pretty complex. But on the other hand, this is the first step on the long road to the things that we find so incredibly complex in nature now, in including ourselves. And since there was nothing before the cell, we, we sort of have to start there. Dr. Schechtman described one cell working in isolation, but cells don't work in isolation. They communicate with other cells. Yes, indeed. And as soon as you get a bunch of them together, things start to happen that would really never happen as a party of one. And when that's going on inside a head, well, scientists want to listen in. Eavesdropping on neurons next. And then later, the rise of consciousness, its emergence from big picture science. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, well, one and one is two, and two and two is four, and so on. And as the so on increases, interesting properties just might emerge. But this depends on what the single entity is. I mean, if it's dollar bills that I'm stacking up, not much happens until I pile up hundreds or thousands of them, and then I quit my job and head for the South Pacific. But that particular impulsive behavior would emerge from me, not from the collection of dollar bills. But some things, in particular living things, take on different properties when they get together. Hi, I'm Steve Potter. I'm a neurobiologist and biomedical engineer at Georgia Institute of Technology in the Laboratory for Neuroengineering. Steve Potter has watched what happens when individual brain cells meet each other and greet each other. He adds neurons from a rat to a Petri dish, and as he does so, the cells begin hooking up with each other and communicating. He then taps into this mass of cells with fine wires to understand how the brain cells exchange information and whether or not they can process outside information as well. 
He and his team work at the Georgia Institute of Technology in the field of neuroengineering, an emerging field, you could say. Neuroengineering is a new term that describes all the situations where technology and brains meet, I suppose, or the nervous system. Another term that I like to use is a simpler term, which is just applied neuroscience. So in the same way that mathematics can be applied to help build bridges, neuroscience can be applied to build devices and drugs and whatnot through neuroengineering that help people. Okay, well, since it's an applied science, building bridges, uh, can you give me an example of a bridge that neuroengineering has built? You've got a lot of labs down the hall here at Georgia Tech. Uh, I didn't see any uh, chips being implanted in chipmunks. I mean, give me a great example of the kind of thing that has been done in neuroengineering. So neuroengineers these days are doing things that previously would have been called miracles. The best example of neuroengineering is a cochlear implant. So uh, there are over 150,000 people that are profoundly deaf in the world right now that can hear and converse orally like we're doing using their cochlear implants. So these have been around for maybe 20 years or so, but only in the last decade have they really become very popular and useful and they're being implanted even in little children who are born deaf, uh, babies. So that's by far the number one most astonishing accomplishment that neuroengineering has accomplished. Uh, Another one that's more closely related to what we're doing is deep brain stimulation. So there are quite a few people who uh, suffer severe immobility from Parkinson's disease, and they have electrodes implanted in their brain in a certain very specific place that uh, continually stimulate their brain and allows them to move, to get up out of a chair, to walk normally when they were previously frozen in place. As soon as the juice is turned on, I wouldn't say that it cures them. It does not make them normal again, but it makes them functional again. Now, these sorts of applications that you're talking about where, uh, for example, you can have an audio amplifier somewhere near an ear on a microphone and pick up some sound and then somehow get that into somebody's system for hearing, that means you have to understand enough about how, you know, neurons in the brain works to interface to that. I mean, there's no user manual for that. How how do you do that? So neural interfaces, uh, something that our lab does and quite a few other labs are working on, required a lot of basic research around electrodes and electrical stimuli. It's very convenient that part of the language that brain cells use to talk to each other is electrical because we can put electrodes next to the cells or in some cases even poke them into the cells and record their activity and also stimulate their activity. In our case, we're growing cultured neurons in a petri dish that's instrumented with electrodes and we both stimulate and record from those electrodes to try to um, get the networks of neurons that are growing in these dishes to learn something and to do behaviors and to process information. Just uh, sort of a technical question, but at at what level has this been done? I mean, do you just uh, poke a nerve with a little bit of voltage and then it does something? Or do you have, you know, certain bit patterns? I mean, (laughs) did, did they give you a protocol somewhere? Yeah, so unfortunately it's kind of as if we had parachuted onto some remote island and we have met the natives, they're shouting at us, we're shouting back at them, but we have no idea what they're talking about. You know, that's about where we're at with most of the uh, understanding of the brain and specifically of the language that neurons speak. So the kinds of stimuli that we deliver, we try to put some information into them but it's fairly rudimentary and the kinds of behaviors that the cultured networks are capable of executing are very much limited by the bandwidth of our interfaces. 
So we have dishes. Uh, here's an example of one of these multi-electrode array dishes. It's a gold square about two inches across and in the center of it is a little culture chamber that has 60 tiny electrodes. They're so small that you can't even see them. Mm. And that is where a little smear of brain cells would be growing in our, and is growing in our laboratory here. And this gets plugged into an amplifier where we can you know, greatly amplify the signals that they're producing and also to a stimulator that we can use to send artificial sensory information into the network. If you look down the road a little bit, will you be able to take this technology in say a finite future uh, you know five ten years something like that to the point where I can uh, if you will surf the web without having to you know use my fingers and have this keyboard interface I just think of a search term and it goes to Google and returns something to me I think that the neural interface that would be better than our hands and our eyes and our ears is a long way off because those have evolved to have a very high bandwidth. We know how to manipulate our hands very well. As I mentioned, the neural interfaces that we have developed so far are fairly rudimentary. And one analogy that I can say is imagine how when Jules Verne talked about sending men to the moon, he was shooting them in a bullet towards the moon. And what it really took was a very complicated Saturn V rocket. Uh, with lots of feedback systems and, and stages and, and life support systems and all this stuff that Jules Verne didn't even conceive of. So we're at the Jules Verne stage of these neural interfaces. I think it will happen that there will be interfaces that are capable of doing exactly what you just said. Already people are doing similar things with electroencephalography, putting electrodes on the surface of the scalp to control some external things. The most successful type of uh, controls like those are controlled by muscles. You know, the electromyograms that they put on, say, the remaining stump of somebody who is an amputee, they can contract the muscles in that stump and move a prosthetic limb quite effectively. So again, they're using the skills and the body parts that they originally used to control their hand if they had one. And if you try to like circumvent that by tapping right directly into the brain, you need to know a lot more about the language of the brain and how best to interface with it. So right now that's very rudimentary. Can you give me some examples, Steve, of what you're working on in your lab? What, uh, what are the research activities you're involved with that are most exciting to you? Lately we've been getting involved with something that's uh, all the rage in neuroscience right now, which is called optogenetics. The idea is to take some genes from bacteria and algae that are light sensitive. So there's little creatures that live in ponds and they swim towards the sun. And clever genetic engineers like Carl Dyseroth and, and Ed Boyden and, and their colleagues have taken these genes and spliced them into neural genes. And, and those make the neurons uh, light sensitive. So we are using these tools that they have created to make our brain cells and our dishes light sensitive. We have a project that's a collaboration with a neurosurgeon at Emory, Bob Gross, who works with epileptic patients. And we are using a rat model for epilepsy, trying to cure the rats of their seizures by hooking them up to a fiber optic, shining light in their brains, and exciting cells that we have previously genetically engineered to be light sensitive. We think by doing this, we'll be able to stop the seizures because in our culture dishes, we also have seizure-like activity. I can play some of that for you, and you can hear what that sounds like. So this is a multi-electrode recording of a cultured network of neurons growing in one of these multi-electrode array culture dishes. 
And these things, uh, because they're sitting in an incubator deprived of any inputs, they tend to develop seizure-like activity. And this is what it sounds like when you take those recordings and hook them up to a loudspeaker. And, and, and the uh, burst of uh, static, that's the seizure part? Exactly. So seizures are when huge numbers of neurons or brain cells all fire in synchrony in your brain, and they're not firing in any kind of coordinated, coherent way. Therefore, they're not really processing information anymore. Okay. And so the idea is to develop some sort of therapy that can keep the, uh, the bursts from happening. Right, exactly. And we have solved this problem in our culture dishes with electrical stimulation. So we're moving now to the animal model. If that's successful, then Dr. Gross will try it out in his patients who have intractable epilepsy. Steve Potter, thank you so much for talking with us. My pleasure. Thank you for being here. Steve Potter is a neurobiologist and biomedical engineer at the Georgia Institute of Technology. So in these Petri dishes, he had these rat neurons... Yes, he had a whole bunch of cells. That's right, neuron cells. That were light sensitive. Yes, because he had genetically engineered them. You know, he had taken these uh, genes out of some bacteria that are light sensitive and put it in the rat brain cells. So that means that if you can put these cells into, these genetically altered cells into a rat, the rat would be sensitive to light. And if you were to shine light on the rat it would stimulate these neurons? Well, you have to get the light to the cell. So he talked about having a fiber optic, which is just a, you know, a light pipe, really, that goes into their brains, and presumably there's a plug on the outside of the rat, right, that you plugged into, and you have a little light source, an LED or something. You light it up. That stimulates the neurons inside the rat, and maybe his seizures stop. Now, that recording that he got of the neurons seizing as they were, that, that was from the Petri dish. Yes, yes. He had a bunch of electrodes, you know, in that Petri dish, just like the electrodes that look like little suction cups you put on people's scalp when you want to read their brain waves, right? And he just turned the electrical signals coming through those electrodes into sound. That's all it was. Well, Steve Potter is doing some interesting things with the few neurons, or the many neurons that he has in his Petri dishes. Yeah, but things would get even more interesting if he got lots and lots of neurons together. A whole brain full of neurons She's alive! Alive! One of the most astounding emergent properties in the natural world, consciousness. Terence Deacon is a biological anthropologist and neuroscientist at the University of California, Berkeley. Terry, you write about the emergence of consciousness. Uh, Maybe we should start by defining what consciousness is. I'm not sure we're all consciously aware of what it is. Well, consciousness obviously has lots of different meanings for different people. Uh, I consider it what brains produce, uh, even fairly simple brains. So I'm not one who thinks that only humans are conscious. Humans may be the only ones that are self-conscious in some uh, abstract way. But I think lots of animals with complicated brains, and even some with fairly simple brains, are simply conscious. That means aware of their surroundings and interacting with their surroundings, building a map of their world. Does it mean that they have to be self-aware, that they could recognize themselves in a mirror? Not at all. Not at all. So my sense of consciousness is close to a concept like sentience, in which you're in the world, there's there's a you there, there's a somebody home but not necessarily knowing that. Now, is this sort of a sliding scale then of consciousness as we go from 
what are commonly called the higher order animals, perhaps incorrectly called that, uh, all the way down to, you know, simple sea slugs or I don't know what, that they're just degrees of consciousness. Should I look at my pets and think, yes, they're conscious, but they're sort of half asleep compared to me? How do I envision that or, or can I? Well, probably can't do it clearly. But it's, for me, very clearly a sliding scale. That is, as we get to simpler and simpler brains, I suspect we have simpler and simpler consciousness. Just as in human beings, during anesthesia, we go through various stages of being aware or not aware. And in fact, we can be effectively unconscious in that respect and still have a lot of our nervous system working. So we don't really know how much of a nervous system and what that nervous system is doing to actually define sort of the lowest ends of consciousness. So I take it there's no sort of simple definitive test to determine if some critter is conscious or not. I mean, if it's a sliding scale, they're sort of conscious, but... I think it's not quite that bad. The answer here is that we, as outside observers, probably can't. But as we begin to understand what you might call the mechanisms that generate consciousness, we'll be able to study those mechanisms. I happen to think that they have a lot to do with uh, something like evolution. I think that, in effect, consciousness itself is a kind of evolutionary process. And the result is if we can sort of study those brains of various species and see that they're engaged in an activity a little bit like that, that is, look at the dynamics of the way neurons interact with each other, I think we'll have a sense of that. I think we'll have a sense of that also when we look at human beings in various stages of anesthesia or coma, that we'll be able to assess this once we begin to understand what you might call the dynamics of consciousness. Terry, there have been a lot of metaphors used to describe how the brain works. And these days, of course, the favorite metaphor is it's like a computer. Is it like a computer? I think the way brains work is very unlike computers. There's a number of reasons to think this. Number one, um, we have a system that is very noisy. In fact, what I would say is most signal that's produced in the brain is generated by a kind of metabolic jitter that goes on in neurons. And so we have a, a system that is most, where the signals are mostly generated initially from noise. Yes, we have perceptors that are bringing some signals in, but they're a very tiny fraction of the neural network that we call our nervous system. And so most of it starts from noise. So what kind of computing device do we build where noise is not a bug, but it's a feature? And the answer is it's something more like living or computing, but not computing in the sense of machine-like computing. It's actually what evolution does, generates new structure, new form, new adaptive correspondences with its world by a kind of trial and error process that uses noise, that generates noise, that then organizes that noise into regular patterns and then selects on that noise. I call this process more generally teleodynamic. That is, it's a physical dynamic process, but it has goals. Uh, evolution does not itself have goals, but the way that the system works is that if it's embedded in an environment where it has to adapt, where something has to reproduce itself, then to some extent the components have goals, organisms have goals, even though evolution doesn't. Well, that sounds like a sort of a Darwinian theory of the emergence of intelligence, right? You've, you've got this noisy system, but if some of that noise results in good decisions in terms of your survival, 
which might represent some sort of increase in your IQ. I don't know that you know that that gets passed on, and consequently the the next generation will be able to sort of redirect that noise into into thinking of some sort. Right. Well, actually, I think the noise is actually the source of our thinking, to put it mildly. I think the real issue with Computing is it has nothing that I would call a dynamical depth to it. That is, the things that stand for something in the world are basically switch settings, ons and offs. I think that actually what goes on in the brain is it's much more dynamical. By that, I mean that the thoughts that we have, I think, are the result of self-organizing regularities. In complexity theory, sometimes they're called attractors, regular things that show up, regular patterns that show up that are somewhat chaotic as well. That means that there's a kind of depth at the very bottom level of this is thermodynamics, just sort of the way that things get messier and messier, produce noise. I think that's the basis of our thoughts. I think that we, in a sense, emerge out of the noise so to speak, moment to moment. You've said that the computer is not a good metaphor for how the human brain works, so I have to ask, does this impede in any way the chances that we can build an analog to the human brain, that we can build a thinking machine, given that the machines in the brains are different kinds of things? Um, I think we just have to begin to understand the differences, and it doesn't mean that we can't design devices that work differently that work unlike computing today, but end up producing uh, representations, end up producing experiences. Uh, I think that's inevitable if we pursue this pathway. I actually think that it's inevitable even if we discover it by accident, that we actually try to simulate what brains are doing at the very most basic level. Computers don't do that. We can get close to it. But, in fact, computers work in a very different kind of logic. The thermodynamics of computers, the source of noise, is bad news. We do everything we can to get rid of it. Um, We refrigerate the system, everything we can to get rid of the noise because noise is bad news in computing. Noise is the source of new information in biology. And that includes not just evolution, but also embryogenesis. I oftentimes think about the way a thought develops as the way an embryo develops. It differentiates from something undifferentiated and unclear as to where it's going to show up. But it differentiates, becomes more and more specific over time. So I I think about thinking and growth and development from an embryo as very much a similar kind of dynamic. Terry Deacon, thank you so much for uh, talking with me. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Terrence Deacon is a biological anthropologist and neuroscientist. He's at the University of California in Berkeley. Brains, brains, brains. Well, it's not all about brains. Self-organization and the emergence of complex behavior abound in the natural world. That's coming up. It's Emergence on Big Picture Science. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. 
But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. The process by which individual entities that are not only capable of simple behavior get together and somehow produce complex behavior is emergence. Another name for this is self-organization, and that's something that happens all the time in nature. Hello. You might not think of it when you're talking about inorganic stuff. I mean, for example, you don't expect to see a bunch of rocks pile themselves up into pyramids without some human help. Although if you did, it would make a great YouTube video. The self-organization that produces complex behavior takes place not only in our heads, in the form of consciousness, which we've heard. It abounds in nature everywhere. And it also occurs in social institutions. You can find it in economics, for example. And the researchers at the Santa Fe Institute in New Mexico try to understand this phenomenon. And that's where Simon DeDeo is a research fellow. Simon, we just heard Terence Deacon describe the emergence of consciousness, all these neurons in our brains coming together and organizing in a way that we're able to think and think about ourselves and so forth. Do we find... Other examples of this emergent or self-organization behavior in nature? Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the most basic principles, I think, from the physical sciences through to the biological and cognitive sciences is this phenomenon of emergence. When I talk to students about emergent phenomena, when I talk to them about collective organization, self-organization, consciousness is sort of the, the hardest problem, the most advanced kind of set of questions you can ask about these systems. But emergence is... I wouldn't say ubiquitous, but it's something so common that we almost don't even notice it happening around us. We think, for example, in social systems, uh, we can look at the emergence of political parties. And so what is a political party, right? It's in some sense, an individual, a supporter, plays somewhat the same role as a neuron does in the human brain. So I have very little power, for example, if I'm a member of a party, to push it around very much. But the collective behavior of all of us within that party the ways in which we interact, somehow lead to a set of emergent rules that we call political science. That kind of separation, separation between, for example, what we would call in physics, the, the microphysics of a system and the macro scale behavior, the way in which those two things split apart, that's the basic story of emergence. Can you say more about that? Because it sounds as though embedded in the definition of, or included in the definition of emergence, is that the behavior that the group exhibits as a collective is different from the behavior of the individual parts. And I wonder if we see this throughout nature. I think we do. We can observe in the social insects, like ants and termites, a set of behaviors on the macro scale, right? On the largest scales, we can see them build anthills, we can see them find food find tracks, find in, indeed find optimal ways to get the food out of, out of the pantry. And those abilities, you can't locate in any one particular ant, right? If you take one of these ants out of the system, it doesn't have intrinsic in itself the knowledge necessary to find the sugar. And so the way that system is able to self-organize, it's able to process information 
on a much larger scale than the individual. That kind of behavior is, is something that is, I would say, ubiquitous, certainly in the social world. And, you know, a classic example that, that comes from economics is how prices get set in an economy. So when I buy a pencil, I go to the store, I buy a pencil. Pencil costs maybe 10 cents for a single pencil out of the jar. How is that price set? That price contains within it a huge amount of information. It contains a huge amount of information, for example, about the price of graphite, the price of shipping the graphite from the mine back to the States, new technologies for building the pencil itself. There's an enormous amount of information that comes into fixing the price at, let's say, 10 cents a stick. And so nobody actually has access to all that information at the same time. Nobody's actually sitting there. There's no central planner in our economy that actually sets the price of a pencil. And yet the collective action of all sorts of different people, people who may not even know each other, all of those actions together create a system that's able to do something that no individual themselves could do, which is indeed tell us how much a pencil should cost. Well, it's interesting this term self-organization suggests a, a consciousness and awareness about organizing. But in the case of, of the ants and in the economic case that you laid out and certainly in neurons, an individual neuron isn't looking at another one and saying, hey, let's hook up. And if we all hook up together, maybe we'll produce consciousness. It's just happening, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And is this something that nature, in the case when it's natural systems, uh, that have been produced perhaps through evolution, the forces of evolution. Does nature want this? Is this something that nature craves, for lack of a better way of explaining it? Or what is the advantage of having this, this emergent behavior throughout the natural world? I think that's, I think that's probably the right, right way to ask the question, what is the advantage of this behavior? And what we've learned to do in science is learn to say that some kinds of properties, some kinds of things, such as, for example desires, needs, goals. These things are not inherent at the physical level, right? Electrons don't want anything. Genes don't want anything. But when they act together, when they act in a system, the appearance of wanting and the appearance of awareness even, those things emerge out of the combinations of lots of unthinking, undesiring, unaware subunits. And then you ask the question, well, does nature want this, right? And in some cases, it seems to. There's something really useful about, for example, you and I being aware of our own goals. So it sounds as though this emergent behavior can happen in the in the living world and, and also the, the non-living world. You talked about electrons a little bit earlier. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, the big example would be um, you take a bunch of chemicals floating around in the oceans of the early Earth and somehow life emerged out of that. Mm-hmm. And isn't that the ultimate example of emerge or self-organization because it's not biology, yet it produced biology. Exactly. Yeah. I when when I when I've talked about emergence and of course the other the other sort of end of the stick you might say is reductionism, right? So the idea that biology is nothing but chemistry, the idea that society is nothing but psychology, that you know psychology is nothing but biology. We've organized the way we study things into these sort of separate silos, these separate fields, and all of the really cool problems are basically at the interface of these fields. And so how you go from a chemical system to a biological system, how you have a new, new properties such as, for example, replicators, right, self-reproducing units, how you get that transition, those are some of the best mysteries that we have. And, of course, neuroscientists and psychologists, they're 
on either side of one of the great divides, of course, which is how you go from a biological system to what you might call a psychic or cognitive system. Simon DeDeo, thank you so much for speaking with us. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Molly. Simon DeDeo is a research fellow at the Santa Fe Institute in New Mexico. You know, we've been talking about how complex behavior can arise from simple basic parts and do so without any real plan. The emergence of consciousness in the human brain is, of course, a stunning example of that. But is it just that the DNA of some critter or other gets scrambled, you know, gets mutated, and occasionally produces something that's better for surviving, maybe smarter, maybe more complex? I mean, is that all there is to it? So is the idea that it's just random and always random? Well, computer scientist Leslie Valiant at Harvard University says that Darwin might benefit from a little help from a process akin to machine learning, which, of course, is familiar to computer scientists. This Darwinian learning is very much like how certain computer software can learn things by constantly refining the rules it uses for making decisions. In other words, living things might be using machine learning algorithms, as they're called, to improve themselves. But Leslie Valiant calls these algorithms eco-rhythms in his book, Probably Approximately Correct, Nature's Algorithms for Learning and Prospering in a Complex World. I think the word emergence is a 19th century term, and it was invented to suggest that this is a very difficult phenomenon to understand, because at the time people had great faith in their theories of single particles, but didn't quite know how to put together a theory of how they interact on a large scale. So in some sense, uh, computer science has stepped in as a theory of how many individually acting agents or many individually acting steps can add together to achieve something which makes sense uh, on a large scale. Well, perhaps you could uh, give me some example of how that happens, because when I think of computer science, I I don't think of anything that has much bearing on the behavior of, you know, masses of cells or, I don't know, individual organisms like ants or anything like that? Well, maybe the best analogy, which is around us every day, at least in the last few years, is the use of machine learning. Uh, So whenever you talk on the cell phone or interact on the internet, um, many systems you interact with achieve their behavior by learning. So, for example, if you use a language translation system, Uh, Most of the knowledge about the various languages was put in through examples, not by careful programming. So you could say that its behavior, which is very complicated, has somehow emerged from a fairly simple learning program based on a lot of interactions with the world. So I think uh, machine learning is an example of where computer science studies the emergence of complex, useful behavior from simple components. Well, if we take, uh, the, I guess, the ultimate example of complexity, at least we like to think that, our brains. I mean, it's just a mass of, you know, cells, neurons, whatever. I mean, it's just a bunch of kind of simple parts, and yet it has these very complex behaviors. We call it thinking, consciousness, whatever impresses you about the brain. Now, my limited understanding of evolution is that, okay, you had some simple brains that could do simple things, but because of natural selection, brains that were a little bit more agile in doing something that was useful for survival were the ones that propagated into the next generation. Isn't that all there is to it? I mean, isn't that the way you get this complexity? Yes, but um, so the question is, what is complexity? So in, in this sense, I think systems have to be complex because their behavior is complex. So in evolution, maybe a more complex system has behavior which is more beneficial than a, than a simpler one. So the question arises, how do 
mechanisms with very complex behavior arise through interactions with the world. So it's not so trivial to explain how these complex behaviors emerge. Is there a problem with evolution in the sense that if you just say, look, here, here are some species over here, and because of random mutations in their DNA, they're going to produce offspring that you know are a little better or a little worse at all sorts of stuff. And okay, we'll just filter them into the next generation, the ones that got a beneficial <laughs> mutation, they're in the next generation. Does that work quickly enough to have produced a human brain in, well, I guess it's been about four billion years? Um, well, that's the big question. So one issue is that when you say random mutations, there are many ways in which you can have random mechanisms producing the next generation of genomes. So presumably, if the Darwinian schema works, which most of us believe it does, then there's some variant of it which really does work. But the details have still to be worked out. You want a theory of the method of producing random mutations, which in few enough generations, few enough that there's been time on Earth, and in populations which are small enough that can be contained on Earth, would have produced the results we see around us. Can you tell me what you mean by eco-rhythms? Because you've coined this term to talk about some mechanism that is germane to sort of speeding up the development of complexity. Well, it's a term which I coined for the purposes of a, a recent book to bring t- together a few ideas. So one idea is that it certainly includes uh, machine learning algorithms. So these are algorithms which uh, can achieve some good behavior from from examples of the behavior. They can generalize. But it also evokes other ideas. One is that one has to be able to prove that these eco-rhythms uh, have the behavior one, one wants. Someone wants a an explanation of how these phenomena we see in evolution could have emerged in the time and space available. Well, how does an eco-rhythm or an algorithm or any other kind of rhythm other than popular music rhythms, how does that work? How does that affect the evolution of complexity? Well, one specific instantiation which certainly happens in evolution is um, that our biology consists of proteins. Okay, so what our DNA specifies is how much protein of each kind should be produced given all the conditions in a cell. And these uh, rules which tell your cell now how much of each protein to produce you have in your body. But if conditions change, then these rules will have to change to adapt to conditions, to the climate changes, whatever. So one wants to be able to update these little rules to perform well under, under new conditions. And these update mechanisms are very similar to the machine learning algorithms used every day on your internet systems. For example, you may want to classify whether email is uh, is a junk email or not. And by producing lots of examples of email which you regard as junk, the system can find the patterns which suggest that an email is junk. And from these, identify in the future which email, email is junk. We've discussed how this mechanism the eco-rhythms and so forth, might allow evolution to develop more complex systems quicker than they would otherwise if it was just a matter of mutation and selection and so forth. One of the big arguments when it comes to, for example, the search for intelligence elsewhere in the cosmos is that you might get life, you might get some self-replicating molecules, the equivalent of DNA, in the oceans of another planet, but it might almost never be the case that that eventually produces intelligent beings because, after all, look at all the forks in the road of the evolution of Homo sapiens, and maybe it never happens anywhere else. Is there any insight to that question? 
so the likelihood of, of DNA-like self-replicating materials of a certain of a suitable complexity arising is one question. But uh, once it's arisen, the question is whether Darwinian evolution will lead to what we see today everywhere is one which I think we will be able to answer scientifically, although we're not there yet. So you think we can answer that, uh, as it were, in the lab? We don't need to find another example necessarily. I, I think in the lab we'll gain more understanding, yes. Leslie Valiant, thank you so very much for being with us today. Thank you very much for having me on your program. Leslie Valiant is a computer scientist at Harvard University, and he is the author of Probably Approximately Correct, Nature's Algorithms for Learning and Prospering in a Complex World. Sometimes it sounds as though the machines are alive when we describe them as learning. Yes, yes, we like to do that because it gives them a certain cachet, and I think that personally the machines like it. You know, Molly, this whole thing, this idea of complex behavior coming out of simple parts, it's so, for me, non-intuitive. It's not the way you think of the world. You think of the world if you studied physics, you think of the second law of thermodynamics. Things are always getting messier and messier, and here they're getting more refined. It's amazing. Thanks to our production team, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance. Also support from Google and Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to the episode Emergence. And you can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online, you might find and even download our Big Picture Science app. It's on iTunes, Android, and Windows 8. And if you're a podcast listener, but you prefer over-the-air radio because it emerges from the speakers in your boombox, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, well, consider letting them know you like the show. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.